0: Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Alita Miranda-Wolf. Alita is the CEO of Ethos and the author of the newly released book, Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last. She's committed to teaching love, scaling empathy, and healing harm through diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging strategies. Alita is beyond impressive, and I enjoyed our conversation talking about everything from her journey into the DEI space to building her company ethos. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Alita Miranda-Wolf. Alita is the CEO of Ethos and the author of the newly released book, Cultures of Belonging building inclusive organizations that last. She is committed to teaching love, scaling empathy, and healing harm through diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging strategies. Alita is beyond impressive, and I enjoyed our conversation talking about everything from her journey into the DEI space to the building of her company ethos. Listeners, before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know about For Your Listening Pleasures first collaboration. One of the podcast goals is to raise awareness about various nonprofits and organizations doing good in the world. I always ask each podcast guest if they are part of a particular nonprofit or if there's a specific organization that they support. I have a running list and I hope that one day I will be able to raise awareness and give to each of them. I am excited to announce my first collaboration with The Street artist wordsmith. Together, we designed a sweatshirt that you're now able to purchase, and all proceeds will be going to Paws, Chicago, and Pets for Vets. Make sure to listen to each of their mini episodes to learn more about what each organization does and where the funds will go. I'm also happy to inform listeners that under the podcast umbrella, I have started my own charitable organization called For Your Charitable Pleasure to ensure that all funds now and in the future go towards organizations making a difference in the world. I'm so excited about this collaboration that I personally will be donating $2 for every Instagram repost with the hope of raising awareness around these two outstanding organizations. All you need to do is follow the podcast on Instagram, tag For Your Listening Pleasure, and include the link to purchase in the repost. Additional information, including social media usernames and purchase links, can be found in this episode's show notes. One last thing, Wordsmith, also known as Brody, I thank you for your partnership on this. You were gracious enough to respond to my email and agree to come on the podcast. Thank you for dedicating your time and talent to this collaboration, and thank you for helping support two incredibly impactful organizations. And to my loyal listeners, thank you for listening to the podcast week after week, and i I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Alita. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: So my name is Alita Miranda Wolf, and I'm very excited to be here today. I identify as a white passing Hispanic cisgender woman with an invisible disability. I am also a pregnant person. I am in my third trimester i'm 33 weeks pregnant and i am also the ceo of ethos which is a full service diversity equity inclusion and belonging transformation firm so there's a reason for me to connect my identities to my work since they are in fact linked and i will say that so much of my career my practice my purpose is tied to scaling belonging And so recently, I released a book with HarperCollins' leadership called Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last.
0: So prior to the interview, I've listened to some of your talks. I read the book, which is wonderful. I encourage all listeners to get a copy, especially those who are leaders in organizations, but What I found really interesting is that you have mentioned uh, previously when we spoke that you never felt like you belonged. Can you talk to us about that?
1: Well, some of it can be explained even in just details about my life. So I've never really had a hometown before I was 16. I moved 11 times. So the idea of having a specific base or a house that I had a strong association with, or even a friend group, my most long-term relationships are from college, if they're not my immediate family members. So there's this element of rootlessness, and it's actually something that's very much tied to my other identities. So half of my family is from Cuba and they were refugees from Cuba to Spain and then came as immigrants to the US. So this sense of placelessness uh, is something that is almost inherited from me. When I've asked folks in my family where they identify as being from, there are some who will strongly identify with Cuba and there are others who won't. It's this idea of not really having an anchor. And then there's also just the element that I grew up in between worlds. So I have two sides to my family and you can see that in the hyphen in my name. So there's the Miranda side and that's the Cuban side of my family. And they were very much the kinds of people that we would think about in terms of marginalized identities. So they were immigrants and are immigrants. Their third, fourth, fifth languages are English. They were a big part of progressive and transformative change in Cuba, which is not necessarily the kind of change that Americans love. And they were practicing cultural traditions that are not common to the U.S., The other side of my family, the Wolves, are daughters and sons of the American Revolution. They've been here since the 1600s, English, Irish, German. They've been specifically on the East Coast. They are Ivy League. They are very much rooted to the idea of the Protestant work ethic. And so I grew up in an environment where I was caught in the middle. And I could be a translator and a bridge between the two, or I could feel outside of the two and that is a big part of my identity overall of really being marked by the phrase you don't count because i hold enough power and privilege in my identities that i can't fully participate in non-dominant groups and yet i don't hold enough power and privilege to fully participate in dominant groups And so there's just this collected sense of i don't have a physical place I have inherited the sense of placelessness. And then my identities don't put me in, in these strong community categories. So I often feel like I'm on the outside.
0: At what point growing up did you start to feel this? Cause I can I know, as we all know, adolescence is hard, being a female during that time's even worse. But then when you don't feel like you have a clear idea of who you are or where you come from, because that sense of belonging, you really were, you know, your family's on completely different sides, not like their sides, but different ends of the spectrum. When did that start to become conscious for you?
1: It was certainly conscious for me early on just in social dynamics. I was... A very precocious child, some might say. I was verbal very quickly. I was a reader very quickly. And in school settings, from as young as I can remember, I was really relentlessly bullied. So the idea of being ostracized or not belonging already was front and center for me when I was in preschool and when I was in kindergarten. I had to quit gymnastics because I was the one that got made fun of the most and wasn't invited to things the most. And part of it was just that I I really was strange or different compared to the other kids. And I can see that a lot more clearly now than I could see that then for sure. But there was also just the element of, I noticed it early on because my parents were very different from one another, and also very open with me. And so I knew what was going on with them and their disagreements or their challenges or their frustrations from a very young age. And then on top of that, when my parents got divorced, it only became more market. And that was when I was around 10 years old. And I wanna be clear because I had a different experience with divorce than a lot of kids do. I never thought it was my fault. I thought it was the right decision. I did not believe my parents belonged together. I encouraged them to not be together. And you're literally caught in between when your parents have joint custody and when they don't live in the same place, it's even more noticeable. So you are going from one place to another place and maybe on an 8 hour drive or on a flight and that makes you feel the separation or the gap even more
0: yeah. and i don't think that's fair to do to a child when i understand like wanting to see your child but 8 hours in a car or on a plane that's just not fair to a, a child and i can, it- and i'm sure that whole situation probably made you grow up even faster. And I know I went through some experiences when I was younger that made me grow up faster than my peers. And then that made me even more almost like an outsider because stuff that they were dealing with was like a cakewalk compared to like what I was working through or dealing with like at home or, you know, it kind of forced me to grow up so much faster And you start to realize what's going on in the world. I don't know if you had that same experience, but it's hard to relate to your peers when you're already being brought into like adult situations when you're younger.
1: I was certainly always very adult, even before my parents got divorced. And I have a background and a history with trauma and have had to really work through Trauma in a variety of ways as an adult. With that said, I didn't experience a whole lot of resentment or anger or sense of unfairness because I really understood then, as I understand now, the very difficult and unpleasant choices that have to be made when you are not in control of other people. And that was the situation that I saw. In terms of relating to my peers, I think one of the challenges that I experienced was that I wasn't angry. So I had a lot of peers who had gone through divorces. I mean, the reality is divorce is common. And at my age, there were a lot of kids going through it too. And they were just so angry and hurt and confused, which I could understand. And at the same time, There was an advantage to me being an outsider, which was I could almost take an outside look at my own life, at my own family, at my own self. And so I could get above my emotions in some ways. And honestly, now I'm processing them. So I'm not saying, wow, this was an incredible thing and look at how resilient I was. It was more that I had a greater sense of empathy at that time than maybe other kids did. And it was really also coming from this place of when you are someone who experiences a lot of trauma early on, you figure out ways to protect yourself. And one of the ways that I learned to protect myself was by being very rational, very even-tempered, and thinking about what others needed from me and how I could offer care. And so that was very much the place that I came from in everything that I did.
0: It's kind of funny now that when you're an adult and you realize, uh, coping mechanisms that you've done that are just like not healthy for you long-term with boundaries or saying no. And I know that's something that kind of came up later with you, with your work, because you would work 80 hours a week when you were, um, out of school to the point of exhaustion and fainting. But before we jump to that, um, Another, you went to the University of Chicago and you had your heart set on being a lawyer. I understand that somehow you made it onto the law review as an undergrad, which I've never heard of before, but congrats to you. There should be like an award or something that you get for that. Um, You took the LSAT, you went above and beyond and something, one day you woke up and was just like, this isn't the path I want to take. What, why did you have that change? And did you feel disappointed in yourself that you woke up one day and was like, I don't want to do this, but I don't know what I want to do. Cause you seem, and from your book, I read like you make a plan, you go for it. There's no questions. Why did you have that kind of, you know, come to Jesus moment? I can't think of a better phrase, but
1: So, I mean, the reality is I didn't just wake up one day and decided I got hit by a car and had reconstructive surgery, had to relearn to walk and went through a very painful recovery period. And I still have some mobility disabilities from that accident. The way that I've crystallized it for other people is I spent five days in the hospital before I had my surgery and I was in excruciating pain during that time, because no matter how much pain medicine they give you, if your shoulder is not just broken, but dislocated, any small movement is going to send shock waves of pain into your body. Right before the accident, I had felt like I had gotten a series of big breaks. So I was being considered for a Truman scholarship, which would essentially cover the cost of law school. I didn't know if I was going to get it or not, but I had made it as a semifinalist. I had also just gotten an internship with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on the legal team to really learn how they were doing their work and be able to be involved in policy, and this was what I was working towards. When I was in the hospital, I was encouraged by multiple people, my surgeon, my nurses, my parents, to take a leave of absence, to take at minimum three months, and I refused. I refused. I went back to school a week after my surgery because it was the only place where I did feel a sense of belonging and support. And I thought, if I am in the place that makes me feel motivated and energized, I can recover from this. But if I have to languish in my recovery, that's not how I am. That's not my personality. That doesn't work for me. And the thing about college is, it had given me a level of independence that I really didn't have growing up. And a lot of people experience that, but I would really set up a life for myself. I had my own apartment. I had my own job that I really liked. I had a course load I was looking forward to. I had my boyfriend, who is now my husband. I had my best friend. There were things I didn't want to go away from. And the desire to stay and have those things because they were the right things for me drove me to making a very difficult decision. You know, I went off of painkillers very early, probably within five or six days because they were making me foggy and I wanted to be able to do my schoolwork. And it was not an easy period. I don't want to gloss over it. I lived in a seven story walk up and I couldn't walk. I mean, there were some real challenges that opened my eyes to exclusion and disability in particular, that really started to shape my own view around DEIB early. And I just really didn't want to go to the EEOC. And I thought about it and I thought about it really at length and I said, I would have taken that leave of absence if what I was going back to was that legal internship. If what I was going back to was all of the work for the Truman Scholarship. Because the reality is the things that I wanted to advocate for within the law were very interesting to me. And the academic work was interesting to me, but the actual practice was not something I wanted to do. It was practical. And again, I want to emphasize this. I am closer to the immigrant side of my family. So when I decided I wasn't going to be a doctor, the other choice was lawyer. And that was the path I pursued because I knew that I wanted to be able to financially support myself. And I knew that I wanted to be able to support others financially. And I knew two professions where people made money, doctors and lawyers. And it just so happens on the other side of my family, that's what people are, doctors and lawyers. So all of that had guided my decisions. But even when I was in my first year of college, really building up this entire path to law I knew I wasn't going to love it. I was being practical. And I've often thought about my life in terms of the holistic. So how do I have the most complete vision of what a good life might be? And because I would come from a place of financial insecurity, and because I've come from a place of knowing what it's like to not have health insurance, to not be able to pay bills, I made decisions that way. After my accident, I had this moment of, well, I don't want to be a lawyer. I also probably don't want to be a professional writer. I had started a literary magazine as well, and I had been doing freelance writing. So I guess it's time for me to start experimenting. And I saw that as a challenge, but also as an opportunity to plan. And I really am one of those people who believes that you can solve any problem with a list, any personal problem. I don't mean social or systemic or global problems, but- I'm the same
0: way. (laughs) Like, let's figure out if there's a problem, let's figure out a way to fix it when we're able to. Like the bigger problems, like this podcast, I hope that this uh, helps towards solving the bigger issue of people not understanding where they come from or talking about issues like diversity and inclusion or even the term covering, which we'll get to, because that's a new term I learned. Um, But yes, if you're able to do it, like if you're in control, I can solve it. And I've listening to you kind of talk about it. I'm like, we're very similar like that blinders on, we're going to get this done.
1: That's what I did. And I explored another path. I think one thing that helped me though, Mallory, honestly, was I did work the entire time I was in college. And so I I, do had, too. <laughs> I had this opportunity, I'm sure you understand this as well, to not be as afraid of what would happen after college because I had been working. And so I knew that at this point, this was my third year of college that I had this accident, I was going to be able to find a job and it was going to pay what I needed it to pay. And I was going to be flexible. So it was a matter of what do I need to try that I haven't tried yet What do I need to experiment with? So one thing I'll say is, yes, I am planful. Yes, I can be rigid, but it's interesting whenever I take any kind of personality assessment or have an astrological chart read, my defining characteristic is adaptability. So I have no problem changing course and I don't get super attached to any one way. Usually I'm trying multiple options out at once to see what's gonna work for me. And so do I think I would have had that reaction my first year of college? No, but I do think that working and working because I really needed to make money meant that I worked a whole lot more than some of the folks that were in my circle. And there was a really weird restriction at the University of Chicago when I was there, which was you could only work 10 hours at a job a week. And so I just at one point had six jobs because it was the loophole, right? It didn't matter if I had multiple jobs, it just mattered that I wasn't doing more than 10 hours of work. And so I was in the communications office, I was in the career advancement office, I was organizing a festival, I was at the arts center, and I was just trying out all of these other kinds of roles. I was working in the library and that had given me a sense of, okay, there are other things that I can do And maybe when I had started college, that wouldn't have been the case. I would have said, if I'm not a lawyer, there's no other chance for me. But by this point, I understood there were many other options.
0: So there is no doubt in my mind, whatever you decide to do, you're going to be great at. That has never been a doubt from when we first started talking, even right now. But what I found really interesting is you went into venture capital like such a different space from where you are currently, but more importantly, you were the first Hispanic woman to be working in that space and you were the youngest director at 24. I know what I was doing at 24. I was not a director of anything. It's very rare. Um, How did you decide to get into that VC space and talk about what it was like, not only being a woman, but also being like the first Hispanic female.
1: So it actually started in college for me. I had developed a strong relationship with our head of entrepreneurship in the career advancement office, Jerry Huang. And I always name him because even though he's not there anymore, he made it possible for me to do a whole lot of things that I wouldn't have otherwise. And for him, One of the things that he did was he let me know that there was this internship opportunity at Hyde Park Angels. And I didn't think I was qualified. They were looking for econ majors. I tripled, I did English, Romance Languages and Law Letters and Society, but I applied anyway. And I was really adept at resumes and cover letters because I was working as a career advisor, a student career advisor for other students looking for internships and jobs. And I ended up getting an interview And I got an offer to be an intern in their consumer products and services team, and it wasn't paid. So here's the deal. I can't take an unpaid internship at this time. Jerry arranged for me to get a stipend, a quarterly stipend from the university so that I could do it. And that's what I mean about always bringing him up and always mentioning him because anytime that I had a barrier, especially related to things like money, he would find ways for me to get it or apply for a fellowship or apply for a grant. And that was huge for me because there were just things I would not have been able to do. So I started interning there and serendipitously or not, the person that I was interning for, who was the associate, really had checked out because she had decided she was going to go to McKinsey. So I started doing all of the things that she was doing. And I had the advantage of this being a small enough team that people saw that I was. And so I kept being entrusted with more and more and more responsibility. And even by the end of it, like hosting a social event for all of the associates, as if I was one of them, getting my title changed from intern to junior associate to associate. And by the time I graduated, I had been an associate at Hyde Park Angels, which normally you couldn't have even been an associate unless you had gotten an MBA. So that all had added up. I went to work in industrial manufacturing, and that was a very different role for me. It was what, again, would achieve this holistic life that I was looking for. My fiance at the time was applying to grad school to get his PhD, And interdisciplinary sciences, he got in everywhere he applied. So we were in a situation where we were saying, are we going to go to Palo Alto? Are we going to go to Berkeley? Are we going to go to Texas? Are we going to stay in Chicago? And I had different opportunities, but this industrial manufacturing one had some things that stood out to me. One, it was definitely the best offer I received in terms of compensation. It was enough compensation that I knew I'd be able to pay for my wedding, which I knew I was going to be the one to do. And it was a generalist position in management development. In other words, they were grooming me over the course of two years to become a leader, which was the only thing I knew for sure. I didn't really know what space or field I wanted to be in. I knew I wanted to be in charge. And it wasn't necessarily because I love to Um, hold power over people. I wanted the freedom to make stuff. And the only people I saw who had the freedom to make stuff and were economically stable without outside support were in leadership positions. So I took this position and I excelled in the position. And I was also crying pretty much all day Sunday, every Sunday, because I had to go to work on Monday. It was just not culturally the environment for me. By any stretch. And I was losing myself in a variety of ways. For example, I have always been an active person. I've always had a lot of different hobbies and a lot of different interests. And I was on the couch watching Parks and Rec reruns all day long when I came back from work. And that's just not me. There's nothing wrong with that. But you notice a change in yourself and it's not a change that feels right. It doesn't feel good. It feels like you're just getting by So around that time, one of the connections that I had at Hyde Park Angels reached out and said, do you know anyone who would want this program associate role? It was way less money than I was making. And it was a way more junior position too than what I was doing, even though I had only recently graduated. The thing about my job at the time was they accelerated me very quick. I mean, I was already managing people. So, I applied anyway (laughs) on a whim and I got an offer almost immediately and I had to make some really big decisions about it. Am I going to take a $28,000 pay cut, which I did.
0: When it comes to your happiness, and I've heard this from like guests after guests, and I know myself, I've experienced it. You might be making more, but if you're miserable, you're going to be spending it way faster, buying stuff, trying to make yourself happy. And you have those, you don't even enjoy your weekend because you have that anxiety about having to go back to work on Monday and it's just not healthy. After a while, your brain and your body just cannot keep going when you're that unhappy.
1: So I, you know, I took on this position and what I'll say to add to what you've shared about happy versus not happy For me, it was less about happiness and more about autonomy. And this was a sort of learning for me over and over and over again, because there have been plenty of choices I've made where I'm not happy at work, but it feels okay. So for me, it's about purpose and greater alignment to the person I want to be. And it's also about feeling free to make my own choices. And one of the most challenging things about the culture I was in previously was if you got up to go to the bathroom, there were three people watching and writing it down. And to feel so monitored all the time was constricting. I got written up for dress code violations twice and I wasn't doing anything to violate the dress code, but there was just a way of letting me know that people were watching me and then if I did anything that went against their own standards of assimilation, there was going to be a consequence. So even though folks were talking to me about promotion opportunities and how far I would go and how the work I was doing wasn't going unnoticed, I just didn't feel free enough to feel safe. And with this job at Hyde Park Angels, I knew there would be more flexibility, I knew there would be more choices, I knew that I would have more autonomy. And for me, that trade was absolutely worth it. Even though it wasn't necessarily a reduction in hours, it was not an easier lifestyle. In some ways it was a harder lifestyle. But if I wanted to go to the bathroom, I didn't have to worry that people were deciding whether I actually had to go or was trying to get away from my desk. And it made me work harder and it made me do more and be more creative to have that space and that freedom because I was very structured. So I didn't need to be monitored. I'm the kind of person where in preschool, I used to give myself extra homework. I've given myself extra homework my entire life. I wrote two theses in college at the same time, uh, which I didn't have to do, but did because I like to structure my life around the things I'm interested in. And so if I'm interested in my job, I'm going to do the things in my job and I'm very motivated in an independent way. So I got into VC, but what I always say is I was, it really was luck for me. I didn't know what venture capital was really, until after my car accident and I started exploring entrepreneurship and in working with startups, realizing that they were completely dependent on venture capital and didn't understand how it worked. And then I wanted to understand how it worked. And then I worked in a VC firm where everybody there seemed to know a whole lot about it, but me and we're coming from more traditional backgrounds. And basically I did a good job and they called me and I took advantage of an opportunity. And the reason I share that is because so many folks are like, okay, what was your strategy? How did you do it? What was your angle? And the reality is, as somebody who hired in venture capital, it's a very nepotistic space. There are 800 firms in the world. More people work at Accenture than in the industry. People really want to work in venture capital and are willing to do just about anything to get there. And it's very relationship driven. People get hired because they know each other because they have gone to the same school, because they have been involved in the same organizations or worked together previously, or you know, you see a lot of partners in VC firms really launch a company, that firm has invested in that company, they have a good exit, they become a partner. And that just wasn't my experience. So there was an element of luck to the folks who look at it and say, wow, I really wish I could get into it. And at the same time, that meant that there were hurdles and challenges for me. I had to teach myself a whole lot. I had to learn a whole other language. And there was a lot of pressure of being on the only side. So when I was hired, I was the only person hired full-time who was a woman. And there were a lot of stereotypes already. There was, um, I remember being introduced to the other team members and, my boss said, now Alita's really quiet and shy, but don't discount her because she has a lot of great ideas. And I know that he was trying to be an advocate for me, but the thing is, Mallory, I'm not quiet and shy and I never have been.
0: I was gonna say, um, (laughs) did he talk to you more than five minutes? But okay.
1: (laughs) But it was just this assumption that that's how I was or that was the impression that I gave. And you know, there was another situation where, I had gotten really bad news about a family situation and I had lost someone in my family. I was kind of frozen. I didn't know what to do, but I had also had a minor disagreement with my boss right before. And basically he had asked me to get him a coffee. I wasn't sure if he meant it or not. Like I, it was a weird situation, clear misunderstanding, not an issue. We were a small and scrappy team, by the way. So I didn't care about getting anyone coffee. People got me stuff. Like it wasn't, it was fine. But he and my colleague who were the only ones in the office that day left. And I started to cry because it was the first time I had been alone and had been able to process this news. And he popped back in and he said, Oh my God, are you crying? Because I asked you to get me a coffee. And there was sort of this sense of, because, you know, that's how women are treated. And I was just like, no, I had a family member die and I've been trying to figure out what to do. And he's like, why are you still here? You should go home. And even that reaction was a little bit tough for me because we never talked about that. And people on my team didn't go home when things went wrong. You stayed late. You got in early. You stayed late and you got more done than you promised. So this sense that I could take space for myself And knowing that the people around me didn't, it wasn't an obvious choice. And so there was that. I was mistaken for an intern all the time, even after I had given presentations to our entire investor base. And I also, to the point you made about being Hispanic. So in Chicago, I was the only Hispanic person working in venture capital, at the time, eventually other folks joined like um, Samara Hernandez, who now obviously runs Chingona Ventures, and she started about a year after I did. So the community started to build up. But the reality is in 2016, I was one of 27 Latino women working in VC in the country. We are now in 2022, and the number is 29. So representation has been very low and continued to be very low for a long, long time. And I was often referred to as a unicorn. You must be so smart. You must be so great. You must be all of these things because look at all of your only statuses. And one, there's a lot of pressure in that. There's also the sense of, this isn't because I'm an exception to my group. I got the position and I was able to show what my group can do, but it's not because I'm an outlier. And so there was just this constant pressure to overperform, to prove myself, et cetera.
0: Well, I also would have like, I don't think it's fair. And we all like society does this where when there's one person we say, well, you know, you have the pressure of representing a group and you cannot make a mistake. You can't, you have to be so thoughtful in what you're saying or how you're acting because you know that somehow you broke through the glass ceiling and you want others to have the opportunity. But if you have a bad day and you're crying, or if something happens, I would worry that pressure is on you that, well, they're going to think every Hispanic woman's like this or, and that's not fair because one that strips you of your individual identity, you, we don't get to actually meet you because you're reserved because you understand representation matters. I have to, you know, show up whatever it is. And I don't know if I'm articulating this the right way, but I hate the fact that I'm hearing from you and your experience the pressure because people kept saying you were a unicorn. And that's not fair because I guarantee you there's hundreds of unicorns, if not thousands of unicorns out there. They just never had the opportunity to even walk through the door because maybe they didn't go to the prep schools or the Ivy League schools. So I think we need to do a better job as a society to stop saying unicorn because it's not there's so many more other people that can do the job. We just don't give the opportunities.
1: Well, and I would say two things in response to that. So one of my colleagues at Ethos, Trevor Jenkins, he often says, talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And then the other thing I'll say is if we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, the term that we have are only. So when you are the only of your group, you actually, when you get hired, you're hired to do two jobs. The job you were hired for in terms of the job description and the job of disproving stereotypes about yourself, the job of being a model version of whatever category you're in, the job of making people feel comfortable around you because they're uncomfortable that you're there, the job of recruiting more diversity into your space, and being a good representative, the job of mentoring any diversity that comes in, of being an educator. There's so much work that goes into that, that what happens is you have individuals really go down two paths. One, they, I would say actually three paths. One, they assimilate so that they can fit in and also just manage expectations. Two, they leave or three, they take on all of those responsibilities. And for me, I really took that third path, but I don't regret it because it brought me to that idea that we talked about earlier in terms of why I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a human rights lawyer or an immigration rights lawyer. And I didn't have any love for the law or legal institutions, but I did for the advocacy. And so in being in this space, I was able to really, from my own lived experience, understand the need for advocacy and change within my industry. And so even though it meant that I worked too much and made myself sick, and I will just say this, whenever folks, I I teach stress management and I'm a mindfulness and meditation coach, in addition to being a DEIB practitioner. Whenever folks tell me they're burnt out, I'll show them the stress curve and I'll ask, are you really burnt out or are you you at overload? Which you can move from overload to optimal stress. When you're at burnout, it's a whole other story. If people were truly at burnout, they would be angry, they would be depressed, you would see increases in absenteeism, And you might have some real biological impacts. And for me, I no longer produce my own adrenaline. So I don't produce my own stress hormones. Uh, So I don't have a cortisol awakening response that's normal. I don't produce adrenaline in the right quantities. The sort of performative advantage of it is that I tend to be very calm under pressure But where did that come from? That came from really pushing, pushing, pushing to the point of biological burnout. And again, I can look at it and say, I don't regret it because it brought me to my purpose. And I got to the meaning and purpose phase of my life very early. I was 25 when I understood my purpose in life. And I can say with many years passing and about to be a mom and running two businesses and having this book that I was right about it then. It wasn't some sort of delusion for me. I was right about it and there was a cost.
0: So let's talk about that purpose because I definitely want to talk about ethos and the book, but for our listeners who might not be aware of the work you do, what was your purpose and how does ethos solve that? So
1: it wasn't stated this way when I found it, but I've really distilled it down because I had this big paragraph of this is my purpose statement and how I make the world more beautiful. And what it distills down into now are really three phrases. So I believe that it's my purpose to teach love, scale belonging, and heal harm. And whether I'm doing that at ethos or not, I'm going to be pursuing those things. And I find myself pursuing those things, whether I'm at work or not. That is where I derive my sense of fulfillment, my sense of contribution, my sense of connection, community, and coalition. And in finding that, I wasn't really sure that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging was even that space. For one, it was diversity and inclusion when I started. I've been a practitioner for 10 years now. Two... I didn't really know how it worked. It wasn't something I was exposed to. I didn't work with outside practitioners in the space, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that's what I thought I could contribute to the world, which was very important to me. And then I realized, because I started seeing all of these posts about diversity and inclusion, that what I'd been doing for years in my VC firm were DNI strategies. And then I found E, the equity component, and things started to really, really pull together for me. So just for folks who maybe aren't as familiar, I define diversity, equity, and inclusion in very specific ways. And then part of the reason that I have my book in place is because I've spent so much time studying belonging that I have my own definition. so when I think about diversity, diversity is just variety in a group. And when we talk about diversity, we want to make sure that we're not in a place of only focusing on one kind of variety. So diversity can look like physical diversity, race, gender identity or expression. If you have a visible disability, it can look like socioeconomic diversity, what class you're coming from, your education level, how much money you had growing up, how much money you have now. It can look like values-based diversity that might be your cultural experience that might be your religious or spiritual identity what you believe right and wrong to be there's cognitive diversity that's what people usually mean when they say diversity of thought although it's important to note that diversity of thought often comes from having diversity of the other areas But that might encompass neurodiversity, your learning style, your processing style. And then there's vocational diversity when we talk about the workplace. So what level you are, what decisions you're involved in, your industry, your trade, your function, that's diversity. And it's an outcome. You can measure it and you can achieve it. You can achieve diversity in a group. It may change because people come and go within the group, but you can achieve it. Similarly, inclusion is an outcome because inclusion is just how the people who have been brought into the group feel when they're there. So if I'm an employee and I'm coming from these different identities that weren't represented before, if I feel a sense of being welcomed and invited in, I'm experiencing inclusion. It's trickier to measure because you can feel really included on your immediate team, but not in your company, or you can feel really included in your company, but not in your industry. And so there's variability to it. But equity, equity is different. And equity has always been what has driven me in this space and what got me into this space and how I have built ethos with my team today. Equity acknowledges that the relationship between power and fairness is imbalanced. So just to get things out of the way, power is not inherently good or bad. It's a neutral force, it's energy in a system. The challenge is that based on the identities that you hold, you will have more or less of it and that will be predetermined regardless of what you do. And so what equity seeks to do is two things. One, make sure that we have equal access across the groups and recognize that because equal access has not existed, we need to serve individual need as well. So my favorite graphic of this is sort of two images of people on bicycles. And equality shows four people with bicycles, but it's the same bicycle. You have a person who is in a wheelchair, can't use the bicycle at all. You have a person who's very small, the bicycle is too big for them. You have a bicycle that's Uh, working perfectly for a woman, medium-sized, and then you have a person who has a much larger body type and size, can't use the bicycle. Equity, everybody has a bicycle that fits their body. And so once I understood that equity is a process, it's a process of being very conscious of what we need to do to provide both equal access and individual need, that made a lot of sense to me. It made a lot of sense in terms of structural change, process-based change, etc. And then one of the things that occurred to me as I was working in DEI, because I always called it DEI until really the last two and a half years, is that inclusion isn't enough. You might feel welcomed and invited. Is that enough in terms of meeting human needs? No, and there's really good social psychology to show this. So I always quote Roy Baumeister, who is one of the two major uh, researchers in the 90s who popularized the idea of belongingness, because in the kind of seminal paper on belongingness, he writes, To belong is to matter. And basically, what the research found is that every human being does have a desire to belong, and it's a basic psychological need akin to safety. And so I started to think about what does mattering in a company mean? Because it's gonna be different than in, let's say a romantic partnership or in a community organization. And that's what I dedicated so much of my research and my time to. And what I believe belonging is in a company is that you feel part of something greater than yourself that values and respects you and that you value and respect back. In other words, in order to achieve belonging in a company, you need to have relationships. So you need to feel connected to other people because as much as you can feel connected to a mission, if you don't have social relationships to make you feel like that mission is something you're achieving together, it won't actually be that concrete sense you need to have resources. And this is where we come into it. If you're going to have healthy relationships, you need the time and energy to maintain them. If you're going to feel valued, you need to have the money to pay people what they deserve. If you want people to feel respected, you need to be able to have enough resources to really say, we are able to honor your boundaries. (laughs) Right? And then you need reciprocity for all of it to stay together. And what I think is so interesting about this is we often talk about how companies don't value and respect their employees. And so there's a lack of reciprocity there that leads to departures, disconnections, lack of trust. And that certainly exists. The reality is though, employees themselves may not value and respect their companies. We're seeing that in the great resignation, not because they're leaving, but the reasons they're giving. They'll say things like, I really like my pay. I like my colleagues. I think I have good benefits. I don't believe in what my company does. I don't think my company does things that are good for the world. I think my company does harm and they're leaving. You don't claim belonging to an organization or institution that goes against your values. That's the reality. So all of that together formed the Foundation for Ethos, which is my diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging transformation firm that I run with my 13 colleagues who are incredible practitioners in their own rights and their own lived experiences and expertises. But the idea is we really are looking to advocate for underrepresented and underserved groups in companies. And our advocacy is rooted in an equity-based approach that ultimately aims at achieving belonging.
0: So I just learned a lot and I love how your definitions are. What came to mind for me is when you talk about belonging, feeling that you matter, do you think that we'll ever really have a sense of belonging within society as like a greater whole?
1: This is the thing about belonging. It's what kind are you talking about? So, the reality is, when you are in a group of people like you, you generally do feel belonging. It's when you're in a group of people who are not like you that you don't. And so, I want to be really clear about this because it stayed with me always. It was a podcast series called uh, Nice White Parents that was released probably two years ago. And one of the things that came up is it was talking about school integration versus segregation and diversity in schools. And it was the white parents who kept talking about the importance of diversity in schools, but the parents of color were talking about having smaller classroom sizes and better access to textbooks. So you have your white parents talking about diversity and you have your BIPOC parents talking about equity. And when belonging is brought up, you have white parents getting teary-eyed and saying, this is what we want more than anything. And you have your BIPOC parents saying, belonging, I mean, I could take it or leave it. What I really want is that my kid gets a good education. And I think about it in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So when you're in the dominant group, you can often take for granted that you already experience a sense of belonging in a variety of places. When you are in the marginalized or non-dominant group, you may want it, but for you, you need to get to equity you need to get to, being able to have the access to resources you need, and then belonging can be important. But to have that first doesn't really make sense because your needs aren't attended to. Uh, But I do feel that people experience a great sense of belonging. It's just not necessarily in positive ways or within this lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So in terms of getting there as a society, One, I don't even know that that is the goal because we should be able to have the agency and choice to belong to the groups we want to belong to. And so that is really, what I would advocate for, that if you want to be part of the group because you believe in the things the group believes, that you are not kept out of the group because of your social identities. But do I necessarily want to claim every social group within society? Do I necessarily want to belong to every kind of group? No, that wouldn't be my preference. It wouldn't be the preference of many other people either. What I think is important is to consider where are the places where we need to strive as much as possible to create the opportunity for belonging because people have to be there and work is an example. There are very few people in this country who have the option of not working. So if we know that it's a basic human need, if we know people have to spend a ton of time at work, if we know that the majority of their stress, their anxiety is coming from work, then that's the place we need to focus on. But you know, for the entirety of society, what I would suggest there is instead of the goal being everybody feels a sense of belonging, that there's widespread cultural intelligence. Basically, that means being able to adapt to different cultural contexts, being able to appreciate them, so understand them, celebrate them, but not necessarily participate in them if they don't make sense with that sort of larger definition of belonging.
0: I know you're very busy. Um, just one last question is, let's talk about your book, the Cultures of Belonging. I read it. I thought it was fascinating. I actually shared it on my company Slack page. How did the book come about?
1: I wanted to be a writer my entire life. I was a writer and I was a ghostwriter in college to make money. And I did my thesis in creative nonfiction. And I really wanted that to be my life, but I knew there was no money in it and I'm practical and I have people to support. So I wasn't going to pursue that as my path, but I stayed in touch with my advisors and my professors. And one of the things that I kept hearing from them is just the fact that if I was going to write a memoir, for example, I needed to be at least 40 because I hadn't lived enough life. And I will contest that until I'm blue in the face because I don't think it's the amount of years
0: I really do think it's the amount of experiences. I think you could have probably wrote one by the time you were 30. And it would have, I'll like, when it comes time, I'll be the first one to buy it. It needs to happen at some point. But there was
1: this huge drive for me, Mallory, of I I really wanted to do it. And that was my craft. And I was sort of searching for where is it going to come from? And then it, it hit me probably two and a half, three years ago that I was learning so much about the practice of DEIB. And I was having all of these meetings with folks who wanted to pick my brain or clients who were like, how, but how, how do you do it? There was so much out there content-wise around why to do DEIB and what options existed. So we knew a bunch of strategies but how do you actually put them in place that wasn't anywhere and i wanted to make everything i was doing in our consulting practice open source because my idea of scale and this is very different than when i worked in vc is that it's not for it's not for us to see a giant return on investment it's not for us to have an acquisition or an ipo i really believe that our organization is responsible for helping as many people as possible and i thought if i put a book together that's really practical, that you could follow step by step, then that's something we can do. Plus, I have um, sometimes very contested views around IP in that I uh, don't really believe in it. (laughs) Um, So I want to be able to share ideas as much as possible to get to the mission and outcomes that matter. And that's how the book came to be.
0: So for listeners, she dedicates the book to um, for those who feel like outsiders and all of the people who invite them in. And I just thought that was such a beautiful way to kind of set the stage before diving into the book. Um, you are so impressive. You have lived, it seems like a thousand lives in one. And I am so excited to watch, not only uh, see you as a mother, cause I, you know, your child is so lucky, um, but also to see where ethos goes, and I hope that um, listeners only get the book, we'll post about it, Uh, we'll connect them with your LinkedIn and website as well, Um, but really take in this conversation and have an understanding of um, thinking about diversity and inclusion and equity in a different way, in a more practical way, that we build a little bit more kindness and understanding amongst, you know, those who are in our social circles, but also those who aren't, or those who are with us in our workplaces, because you never know kind of what someone's going through or how they're feeling. Um, So I end every episode with the final three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be?
1: So I've used this quote so many times that I eventually just put it in my signature line because it is honestly my North star. It's James Baldwin. And the quote is the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it.
0: It's beautiful. I've never heard that one before. Um, And then the second question is if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose?
1: if I could relive any one day, which day would I choose? So there's sort of a, there's a lofty answer in that I wouldn't relive any day because I do believe that they all add up to, and I apologize, my cat does not respect me.
0: Oh, I'm loving it. He's so cute.
1: (laughs) He's a sweetheart, but he's also, um, purring into my microphone. So, (laughs) um, you know what? There's, the sense of, you know, I wouldn't change anything that's taken place in my life because I really do believe that it all adds up to lead me somewhere. At the same time, I think that I can't help it. It's the only regret I had. So I have a rabbit right next to me. We have four rescue rabbits, but um, I had a rabbit named Fergus and I got him, um, adopted him right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I, I don't think I've ever experienced more heartbreak than when I lost him when he passed away. And I've lost a lot of people in my life. And I will just be honest, if the only regret I have was, he was sick, and I could tell he was sick. And he had had a lot of health complications, and I'd always reacted quickly enough and taken him to the right place. And We immediately, when we saw he wasn't eating, took him in the middle of the night to a veterinary hospital. And I really deeply regret the one we took him to. We took him to the one that was closest by, that people had told us would service him quickly. And I wish that we had taken him to the one that we've actually since taken my cat, who was really sick, where they would have actually known what to do with a rabbit. Because losing him, the amount of grief I experienced was unbelievable and it's not over. And he just wasn't a rabbit to me. He was my best friend and we understood each other. And there was sort of a a connection there that is very difficult to explain. However, I did learn from that experience how to grieve, which is something that I have struggled with my entire life. So my entire life, I have thought I cannot take up space other people's grief is more important than mine. And I could honestly do like a five hour podcast on rabbits and rabbit culture because they're weird, (laughs) but I had to do something special. So he had two sisters and they're still with us now. Rabbits have to mourn their dead. Otherwise they kind of develop their own mental health issues. And so we had to take the body and lay it out in the room and have his sisters grieve him and they jump over the body, they dance over the body, they clean the body, they sleep on the body and when they're really done with it, they process that their, you know, fellow rabbit has died. I don't come from a tradition like Judaism where sitting shiva is a big part of things. It's sort of like You you move past it, you get over it, you don't think about it. And sitting in that room, watching my rabbits grieve furious and understanding that I needed something like that. And I had needed that for the loss I had had in my life was such an important lesson. And even knowing that, I would still go back in time and take him to a different hospital where they understood what he really would have needed.
0: The final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose?
1: So this is something that I've actually thought about a lot because I lead so many training sessions and I sort of always start with what my kind of theme song is. It used to be Freedom by Beyonce. That was like three years ago. But Actually, <laughs> what it's been now is Bag Lady by Erica Badu. And it the chorus is let it go, let it go, let it go. And the whole idea is about letting go of all of the trauma and all of the baggage and all that you're carrying. That all of it is valid and that if you love yourself and you let it go, you will feel so much better and you deserve to feel better. And the reason it's become my mantra and my sort of main song is because DEIB work is so hard. And I spend my day every day with people who have experienced harm, who are hurting, and who shouldn't have to. And it's very easy to absorb all of it. It's very easy to self-identify with it, to relive past experiences or trauma. And so... That song has become really important to me and I have to give major credit because it was Jasmine Barnes at Fuel Ed Schools, who's one of our favorite clients who reminded me of it because I hadn't listened to the album in years and it, you know, Bag Lady was on it, but I liked other tracks better. And when she was talking about the layers in that song and how big of a deal it was, I listened to it and I said, oh my goodness, this is, this is a song that I need in my life all the time.
0: Well, I'm really excited to hear the songs. I've never heard it before, but I am going to add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure Spotify guest theme song playlist. So hopefully listeners can listen to it as well as other guest theme songs. Um, thank you so much. This has been so amazing. I would love to have you back on once you, know, you get comfortable with motherhood and continue this conversation because I think we really just... Um, there was a thousand different ways to go and so many different topics to kind of cover and you're so knowledgeable and doing such phenomenal and impactful work so thank you so much
1: thank you for having me